this drum is one of the oldest surviving African-American objects. It was collected in the early 1700s in the colony of Virginia and is now part of, of the United States. It was acquired in or about 1735 by an Irish physician, Hans Sloan, also the founder of the British Museum. But he was also a slave owner. And today this drum sits within the British Museum collection. It's a collection, as I'm sure you know, of more than 8 million objects that combine to tell a very particular story of Britain in relation to the world. And this instrument was one of the very first, first objects to be absorbed into the British Museum collection. And it seems almost at the point that it was collected to have acquired contested histories. Today, it's accepted by scholars to be an acandrum, a West African object that was transported across the Atlantic from West Africa and found its way onto a Virginia tobacco plantation where it came into the possession of Hans Sloan and actually becoming one of the very first objects in his collection. But there are other versions of its provenance that suggest that perhaps it was carved by an enslaved African-American and is actually a very early replica of an Akan drum. Or indeed, there's a version of, of its history that suggests that it was made by a Native American. But what can be said indisputably about it is that it's a beautiful object. It's about the size of a human torso. Its exterior wooden surfaces have been carved with simple decoration, a sort of textile-like decoration of stripes and chevrons. In its original Asante context, it would have been used within a family of drums as a central focus of formal ceremonies. An expert in drum communication would have used an instrument like this to rap an audience in sound and praises. In the 1730s, identification of this drum as a Native American object was actually in complete sympathy with other European Enlightenment thought. At that time, Africa had little or no culture. And so it was labelled then as an American Indian drum. It was an identification that remained unchallenged until 1906, when an ethnographic curator at the British Museum decided to look again at the American Indian drum. And this drum and other similar musical instruments crossed the Atlantic, and with them so did their techniques of playing. But at the time that it was collected, that wasn't known. And when that drum was absorbed into the collection at the British Museum, a little catalogue entry was made questioning its provenance. Was this actually a Native American drum? Was it an African-American drum? But then, in 1906, a curator thought, no, I think this is an African drum. And a little addendum was added to its label. And it actually takes 70 years and huge advances in dendrochronology 
to confirm that the main body of this drum was actually carved from Cordia africana, a tree which is native to West Africa. This was an African drum. And we can now build a hypothesis of how this West African drum came to be found on that Virginia plantation. It's highly probable that the drum came to the Americas aboard a slave ship. Enslaved peoples were allowed no possessions. So it was probably a souvenir collected by one of the European ship's crews. Or perhaps it was in possession of a wealthy independent African who was traveling to the Caribbean or to Europe. It may have been used as part of the appalling practice of dancing slaves, a horrendous tradition of enforced exercise that would take place on the decks of slave ships. But all of this is conjecture, because this and many other musical instruments of similar types crossed the Atlantic, and perhaps more importantly, so did the techniques of making and playing them. And the maintenance of drumming, and musical traditions that represents a kind of poignant sort of defiance for enslaved peoples across the Americas. They also crossed the Atlantic too. It was a kind of conscious investment in cultural continuity in the face of appalling brutality. And the skills of making, the perpetuation of music traditions, and the upkeep of African stories they also crossed the Atlantic too. The conservation of history, of culture, the preservation of the material links to Africa became critical. And from Santeria to Candomblé, from disco to reggae, we can see the rich results of the sacrifices made by Africans to hold on to their cultural practices. They drafted musical instruments of colonialism. They used drums, they used fifes, they used penny whistles. And they adopted the marching tempo of, 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 of all of those marching bands. And they subverted it. They broke all of those traditions and they twisted them. And they used them for their own. They built their own musical landscape. And they used it in their own ways. And as had been in Africa, these musical conventions became an incredibly powerful galvanizing force. And anyone who's heard this kind of drum up close will know the sort of effect it can have on you. Drums are the simplest of musical instruments. And that seeming simplicity is a major part of their wonder. When force is brought to bear upon a surface, a percussive energy is transmitted through the atmosphere to impact on the tympanic membrane of the, ear, of the middle ear. But these drums, they surprise, hitting the listener with a secondary wave, an energy that resonates up through the ground, rising up through the solar plexus to explode in the chest cavity. And the effect is immediate and utterly intoxicating. And when these oral explosions are combined and arranged into passages, it can be utterly thrilling. It can feel like the purest analogue of being. Our bodies crave these rhythms. Beats mirror the explosions in the deepest muscles of the heart. We relish their immutability, their irreducibility, their energy. 
We know to anticipate the rise of an impending beat. We crave the sensation of the impact of a tone on the air. Lament the collapse of the sound when we're left in that very particular oral vacuum between beats as tone gives way to an equally potent momentary silence. It's the most basic epistemological statement. There must, after the beat, by logical necessity, be a space. A space in which the beat can be. There must be silence, a chance to catch a breath and to regain our composure. And the drummers in this part of West Africa, they really know what they're doing. They know that silence. They know it in its varied forms, and they know how important it can be. In much traditional African music, the lacuna, the skip in the beat, a momentary silence is significant, not just as a mechanical break, but because of what it can uniquely invoke in the listener. In the most celebrated African drumming traditions, silence isn't seen as the field upon which, which sound is placed. Silence is an equal and active component in the overall composition. What can be suggested by the quality of a momentary silence is deeply considered and highly valued. Some African drummers have taken the idea of active silence to its extraordinary conclusion. They've learned to collude with the silence and the interference between multiple rhythms of drums to collaborate with that altar rhythm, to entice it from the oral shadows, finesse it and focus it with particular sounds. And even though no single drummer controls these rhythms, this distinct field of resonance is said to have a dynamic and responsive quality all of its own. It's been called the inside rhythm, a ghostly musical presence that seems to manifest itself within the spaces and within the silences. And the mechanics of the inside rhythm are somewhat mysterious. But the politics of silence, for me, is that the nexus of significant cultural phenomena connected to omitted histories, connected to lost narratives and marginalization. Silence, loss, omission, in African history are deeply powerful things. Foucault, he writes memorably about the relationship between power and knowledge, about the label of madness that had systematically been used to silence the poor. Well, people of African descent, they've had to deal with a similarly pervasive and destructive concoction of labels that have been used to malign and silence us. Indeed, for many people of African descent, who suffered through enslavement, through colonialism, through the destruction and the confiscation of their drums. These silence became a powerful analogue of their loss of voice, of their loss of culture, of their loss of story. And the history of our silence is painful to navigate. Perhaps one of the most poignant passages of these drum histories occurred not far from where Hans Sloan acquired this drum in Virginia. In 1739, in South Carolina, drums were the critical ingredient in enabling the Stono Rebellion. 
And it's a rebellion that comes within a hair's breadth of overcoming the plantation management. I mean, the majority of the men and women who are enslaved and work on the land adjacent to the Stono River were ethnically from southwest Africa. And they shared a knowledge of similar drum languages and cultural practices. And after a sustained period of appalling abuse, these communities simply snapped. And on the 10th of September, 1739, they drummed a call to arms. When the drumming ceased and the dust had settled, 40 African-Americans and 20 Euro-Americans had lost their lives. This and similar rebellions prompted the colony and many others across the Americas to outlaw drums and drumming. Ham Sloan, founder of the British Museum, who owned a substantial plantation in Jamaica, later wrote how the African men and women forced to work on his land in Jamaica were formally allowed to use trumpets after their fashion and drums made of a piece of hollow tree, but it was thought too much inciting them to rebellion, so they were prohibited by the customs of the island. The drum had been declared a weapon of war, a thing to fear. Its music, its messages, ammunition of dissent and rebellion. Music, African culture, history had become an incendiary thing. And the impacts of banning and systematically denigrating cultural expression of Africans was profound. Derek Walcott would perhaps capture what that meant most affectingly when in his poem, The Sea is History, he began with an unnerving question that he directs at people of African descent. Where is your tribal memory? Where are your monuments? Where are your battles, your martyrs? And it ends with a devastating final line that our history now lies in that grey vault, the sea. The sea has locked them up. The sea is history. It's a lament, a strike at the loss, the eradication of a history, of a culture, something that is made most palpable in the colonial administration's banning of this most palpable symbol of historic narrative, the drum. The drum was dangerous. And it was occasionally forced underground. And it became tainted and compromised. But that only served to charge it with greater importance. Traditions that survived the Middle Passage, along with new hybrid cultural conventions, felt even more vulnerable. And they understandably became, with that vulnerability, all the more cherished. But whilst people were prepared to go to great lengths to protect their heritage, brutal administrations were utterly uncompromising in enforcing drum bands and restricting cultural freedoms. And one can understand how the poet Derek Walcott would have looked back and felt that his history had been systematically eradicated by these processes. But something else was also happening. Music had acquired a latent political manifesto. Part of Walcott's genius was in identifying how the archaeology of loss and omission had become a fertile reservoir for inspiration itself. 
the once silent rage of these discrete cultures had found a unifying vent, a mechanism through which to consciously, creatively express and disseminate their feelings, a pan-African, diasporic, inside rhythm that resonated with both historic pain and future possibility. And over the course of the 19th century, and in the build-up to the American Civil War, that silence, that vacuum, was gradually filled by the output of new political visionaries. They sought to build new alliances and connections, to borrow new world radicalism, and to connect American Africans with their African history. And perhaps that is what I find so affecting about this object, that implicit feeling of lasting mourning, of lingering narrative loss, that sense of acknowledging ominous omission that is an integral part of our thinking about Africa. Our story, our perspective, so often ignored, so often marginalized, forgotten, here symbolized by a fragile but enduring beauty. I can almost hear Walcott saying, where is your tribal memory? Where are your monuments? Where are your battles, your martyrs? And that final devastating line, the sea is history, that our history now lies in that grey vault. The sea has locked them up. The sea is history. And yet, as compelling, as pervasive as this view of history is, in a very meaningful way, our history against considerable odds, our contribution survives. It thrives, it thrills. In my mind, the great human narrative, African history. It was in Africa, after all, that humanity first defined itself in terms of narrative. And over millennia, Africans have tested that paradigm through their invention and through their imagination. And we must robustly challenge the notion that Africa's story is somehow lost in a fog, that it only remains as part of a fading prehistory. Think about the magnificent medieval African cultures, great Zimbabwe, which dominated the great gold trade routes that fueled the opulent coastal Swahili sultanates through the cultures of the Indian Ocean. Or the emperors of Ethiopia, who presided over a vast region that boasts the longest continuous tradition of Christianity, with formidable transcontinental ecumenical influence, or the magnificent cultures of the Sahara. Even if we don't know this chapter of history, we probably know this image, this, after all, is one of the most famous images of a medieval personality. This is Mansa Musa. In the early 14th century, Mansa Musa ascended the throne of Mali, bounded by the Sahara on one side and the Atlantic on the other, leading him scant options for expansion. But to merely be a lavd emperor wasn't enough for Mansa Musa. He had all the power, all the money, all the territory he could feasibly administer. 
He wanted to find new frontiers to traverse, to define a new paradigm by which to measure his success. And he didn't just want wealth and power. He wanted something more prestigious. He sought knowledge. And he pursued it with a focus and with a dedication of a general waging a war. In 1324, 12 or so years after becoming emperor, 60,000 people left Mali with Mansa Musa on one of the great Hajj journeys ever conceived. Most would walk every hard mile to Mecca. 8,000 were soldiers, 12,000 were personal staff, some were members of his court, but most were ordinary citizens. And along with them travelled 80 camels, bearing 300 pounds of gold. And every night when they stopped, it was said to be like a whole town decamping in the desert. And after completing his pilgrimage, he stayed to meet some of the great Islamic scholars of the age and invited a number of these intellectuals and a group who claimed to be descendants of the Prophet himself to return with him. And amongst them was one of the great poets and architects of the, of the age, Abu al-Sahili, a man who had learned his trade under the formidable Berber architects of Granada. And as much as being a pilgrimage, it was a statement to the world about the wealth and ambition and the intellectual culture of an African state. The news of his journey created waves that would reverberate across the Middle East and Europe. And 50 years later, Abraham Kresketh, the cartographer, would immortalize Mansa Musa holding a gold nugget at the center of his great Catalan atlas made for Charles V. It's an image of a very particular kind of African wisdom and wealth that would become a point of inspiration for European artists for centuries to come. And when he got home, Mansta Musa engaged his architect, Abu al-Sahili, to construct a spectacular mosque for his new Timbuktu. And over the next decade, the Sankore and the great mosques and buildings around and between them developed into the most comprehensive and important centre of intellectual studies in this part of Africa. At its peak, Timbuktu could accommodate 25,000 students, many from beyond the region, some from beyond the continent, and it housed perhaps as many as 800,000 manuscripts. The city was a match for the most respected universities in Europe. And around these madrasas grew up an ecology of private libraries and publishers and booksellers, some of them becoming hugely wealthy. And this, just a single of perhaps as many as a dozen different significant African medieval cultures that were showing similar inventiveness and innovation. Each looked beyond the continent without fear. And this model of a beneficent, wise ruler celebrated in the Catalan Atlas would become a model for fledgling medieval cultures in Europe. But more than that, Africa set the intellectual agenda. It inspired innovation in ways of thinking and ways of thinking that no one questioned. And the meaningful arrival of armed Europeans in Africa a century later was to change much of that.
This pendant mask was created in the early 16th century for the Nigerian king Oba, or Oba, named Esagi. It was made in honour of his mother, Idia. It was carved with incredible skill from ivory. It's a material that would attract Portuguese traders down the West African coast, bringing with them copper and coral in exchange. And it's fascinating. But in this brief period, African rulers saw Europeans as their vassals, as their servants. Here, they were threaded through the monarch's hair like beads or currency. And as the Catalan Atlas illustrated, these cultures were fully aware of Europe and Europeans, but they initially saw them as minimal threats. Within two generations, Europeans had established permanent presence, presences on the West African coast. And as we know, settlements, protectorates, imbalanced trade deals had, and bad alliances, and then colonialism would follow and would combine to devastate the continent. Hundreds of thousands forcibly enslaved, millions killed in wars and resistance struggles, the systematic reconfiguration of economies to benefit Europe, the undermining and the dissolution of indigenous cultural infrastructure, and to assuage the guilt of the colonialists, the investment in appalling racist theories and narratives that would contaminate intellectual culture for generations. But this wholesale denigration of a people and the attempted destruction of their, their culture had an unlikely outcome, a kind of weaponization of identity, a politicization of perspective. It changed not just how Africans saw themselves and judged the world. The view from the periphery, from the margins, became an important part of global political discourse. And the conception of the world, a conception of the world that became airborne, airborne, that became ambient, that sense of the voice from the periphery being one that needed to be listened to. This is Hogarth's Rake's Progress, painted in 1732. It tells a story that people in the 18th century might have been gossiping about any day of the week. The story of a young man who inherits a fortune from his miserly father and thinks that money is going to buy him love, power, happiness. I guess somehow we know that this isn't going to end well. In the second scene, Tom is caught teetering between two, two worlds. Behind him is the roughness of the street. The roughness, but also the honesty. Ahead of him, the affected world of fashionable society. But this is the critical scene. The night has fallen. The lamp has been discarded on the floor. The die is cast. Tom is now drunk in a brothel. There are patterns of limbs, arms, legs that flow across the canvas, leading your gaze from the, his, this fake caress up to the eyes of a young African woman. Behind a Chinese man throttles a young woman. But the black maid, she's looking across 
almost quizzically, critically, a knowing smile. She gazes at a young, innocent woman who's just come in through the door, a girl. And the man next to the girl, can you see, he's holding a candle. Holding a candle up to a mirror, shiny, pewter dish. A dish that illuminates the scene. And in the gloom, if you look closely, you can make out a reflection. It's us. We are part of this. We are culpable. For Hogarth, the African figure that's looking across at the young girl at this bit of the scene, for Hogarth, the African figure has become part of a meta-narrative, a counter-narrative. The view from the periphery is the clearest of all. She is looking at the young girl and her shock, but also looking at this mechanism through which we are all judged. We are all judged. This is Picasso's Demoiselle d'Avignon, one of the most important paintings ever created. It captures another brothel. It sits at the opposite end of the Enlightenment, looking back at the Hogarth. The same themes, the same visual complexity. Both have the narrative catalyzed by Africa. One of the many things that Hogarth shares with Picasso's Le Demoiselle d'Avignon is the casting of Africa as part of the visual mechanism that breaks the fourth wall, pulling the viewer into a complicit relationship. Picasso entwines us in a difficult narrative with this painting, in its corruption, in its sleaziness, in its prejudice. We know that each of these paintings have a kind of narrative drama. We know that here the repercussions aren't over. We know that we are not immune from the accusations in those eyes. He seems to have worked across the canvas from left to right. The figures completed around late 1907 give many clues to a newfound fascination in African art. He just stumbled into a new area of adventure, the Palais de Trocadero in central Paris, and he began collecting masks just like he, he saw on the walls of the Palais de Trocadero. But the clue to this particular painting are actually the figures which are omitted from the final version. Two figures who've actually left the room of this particular bordello. They stepped outside the frame to gaze back at the women of Avignon. They actually figure in the earlier studies, but once you're aware that they're not there, you then have to think about what it was that Picasso was saying. In those studies, he places a medical student and a sailor. And now, imagine them looking back over our shoulders. Why a medical student and a sailor? Well, this is a bordello, a, breath, a brothel, and the men are here for a reason. 
and so are the women. But why are we here? Why is Picasso here? We're here to look, and ultimately like the medical student and the sailor to judge. For the medical student who's had a day of corpses, the women are animate mannequins served up for his delectation. For the sailor on shore leave, they're warm substitutes for someone that he's left at home. So why are we here? Who are they for us? Well, perhaps, like the others, it's not that it doesn't matter. It's that it can't matter, that we daren't care. Within this, with this, the coy demureness of the central figures is obviously fake. But now the right-hand figures, they become almost more interesting. A kind of wanton, exotic availability, the potential for something unusual, the visual vehicle for all of that exotic pleasure is Africa. And these two works, they bookend the Enlightenment, the most aggressive period of colonialism, the Hogarth created at Enlightenment's, in Enlightenment's fledgling years, Picasso at its visual full stop. But each play with exactly the same themes. Both are set in theatres of disrepute. They both make us feel somehow more than involved. We are responsible, and both play with the same awkward placement of the African figure at the edge. They are, in part, essays in identity, in which the African figure is the blank space upon which the alter narrative is cast. But in being outside, they are perfectly placed to cast judgment back. Here, painting doesn't just describe. It is seeking our engagement in building a manifesto. It's demanding not that we change, but that we are active in making change. And as had played out in the Haiti Revolution, in Hegel's master-slave dialectic, the African's plight transcended ethnicity. This was a moment that the pull of the periphery began to wrench the mainstream off of its axis. And whilst Europeans cast this role upon black, the, the black figure, African artists had already rung out their own clarion call. They saw the canvas and the musical score and the blank page as a surrogate battlefield, the place where they could wage a proxy war, wreak glorious revolution, timeless revenge, and condemn their colonizers and appeasers to be judged for eternity. Africa's writers, artists, musicians would conduct a beautiful campaign against colonialism, dissecting the administrator's cowardice, condemning their vanity and greed, and laying bare their racism for posterity to judge. And their culture, their identity, the constellation of things that intellectual Europe seemed desperate to negate, to destroy, became the defiant beacon around which a new kind of dissent could coalesce. Here, a Bember artist captures one of the many European traders who travelled to the interior of the French Congo in the early decades of, the, of, of colonial engagement. Carved from a single block of wood, it's the work of a master. Though made for the European market, it's not a flattering piece. It's tragic and comic. The porters are lost, the European drunk or dying, 
They stop, the confused man at the front points ahead, the bemused man at the back gazes after him. The European was never in charge, always a dead weight, always a passenger, in his lap a rifle, between his, his legs a sleeping dog. Everything about him suggests torpor, redundancy, malaise, inaction. All are tied together and condemned by fate. It might be funny, but the older porter appears to weep. Art is singularly effective in capturing the impact of imperialism on ordinary people's lives. In colonies like Nigeria, it was ordinary citizens, people that had to deal with the most aggressive manifestations of colonial administration, who would commission some of these sorts of works. More than personal, less immediately apparent, this is the work of Thomas Ona Ondelate. And his carvings, they kind of offer us a window onto a world of clashing sociologies and imploding systems. We can see the erosion of traditional ways of life, the diminishment of old and once respected hierarchies. And in place of the conventional societal anchors, we witness the rise of a somewhat confused Western African middle class. And like Hogarth, he allows us to chuckle at the ambient pretensions and suppress fears. Barely hidden is a fondness for a group making the best of tumultuous times. But his main focus of attention are the Europeans here, especially the colonial civil servants. And they are tragic, comic figures. We want to laugh, but have so often, somehow, it doesn't feel an appropriate reaction. He's a kind of social historian. He seems to intuit an impending change that would humble them all. And these are Sappho flags. They capture a particular moment as a tightening of European control of Africa began to have real impact, creating wealth for some, but also denying the vast majority the trading opportunities and securities that they and their ancestors had relied upon. With the founding of the Gold Coast Protectorate in West Africa, there are a small number of local dignitaries who found themselves granted with extraordinary power. And when the First World War began, Nana Foriata, the most passionate West African advocate of empire, demonstrated his loyalty to Britain by offering financial inducements to young men of a fighting age. To encourage their enlistment, he, he, he actually goes, he goes on to publicly donate £1,500 to, to, to purchase um, a reconnaissance plane that flies over enemy lines. It truly was a world war. Yet Africa's story is so often forgotten. And at the start of World War I, the whole of Africa, if you imagine it, the whole of Africa except Ethiopia and Liberia was under European rule. And Great Britain and France controlled the two largest colonies and they draw on them extensively, both for human and also for material resources. Even by conservative estimates, 
Well over four million people of colour were mobilised into the European and American armies. And some of the very first shots that are fired are fired in West Africa. The very first big naval battle actually happens in East Africa. Hundreds of thousands of Africans fought and made the ultimate sacrifice. It was Africans literally upon whose back the war was won. Some two million African workers and soldiers and porters lost their lives on battlegrounds in Africa and abroad, fighting for the interests of those who were jockeying for a place in the scramble for Africa. And when the war was over, Nana Foriata accepted a knighthood and a cane topped with a silver biplane as a gift from the British government. And like a number of other traditional leaders, Aforiata accepted a place on the Gold Coast Legislative Council, arguing, arguing that the new colony was a good thing, potentially a model of indirect rule, an opportunity to embrace new trading and educational opportunities, to build an African industrial giant and transform not just, the, not just his life, but the lives of ordinary people of the colony. Stretched for raw materials and manpower at the turn of the Second World War, Britain needed more than just the cooperation of its colonial allies. It needed Africans to actually make sacrifices, perhaps even the ultimate sacrifice for empire. And that plea for sacrifice from Britain offered Africans real leverage in their long-term pursuit for greater political self-determination and economic freedom. And these panels show Hauser soldiers who were deployed at many of the African fronts and who also saw service in Burma. In his autobiography, the Mau Mau general, Wahuri Itote, he recalls his time actually in these Burmese trenches. Among the shells and bullets, there was no pride, no air of superiority from his European comrades in arms. And they drink the same tea, use the same water and the same lavatories, and share the same jokes. And there were no racial insults, as he says. And he recounts a conversation with a white comrade who asks him bluntly, I don't understand, you Africans. You're out here fighting, but what are you fighting for? At least if I die, I know it will be for my country. But if you're killed, what will you have gained? And after the celebrations of the E-Day, it was a question that echoed across the British Empire and beyond. What had Africans really gained? Many African soldiers returned with expectations that the freedoms that they had fought for and the equality that they that had been afforded in, they'd been afforded in the trenches would be replicated soon across the colonies. Sadly, for the most part, they were wrong. Their battles were not over. Change at home would also have to be hard fought. Even though certain African colonies saw rapid change, many did not. Even within the army, most African soldiers were denied the opportunity to progress beyond the ranks. And for those like Wahuri Atote, who grew increasingly frustrated by colonial injustices and intransigence, they would eventually find themselves deploying their military skills learned in the British army against the forces of empire.
Independence offered African artists a chance to make their issues resonate globally. And to some extent, it's that same humbling, those same humbling issues that continue to inflect much of the very best African contemporary practice. Artists began to shift their focus from depicting the world around them to challenging the world they, they, they saw. With independence came a new language, a new geography for thinking about African culture. Kwame Nkrumah famously reorientating his nation, Ghana, proclaiming that we face neither east nor west, we face forward and the future. Not toward communism or capitalism, but toward their own destiny and to achieve, and achieve what, uh, and to achieve that Africans saw their challenge as gaining control of critical historical um, narratives, but also gaining control of their future. In this painting, what future for our art? Congolese artist Cherry Samba recharts art history, adopting Picasso as Picasso once used African art as an icon of something exotic and latently threatening. Samba depicts himself and Pablo Picasso seated at separate tables. The white text written above the scene questions the future of our art in the world, where artists are oppressed and also where, in order to gain international recognition, African artists first have to be accepted in the West. The statement closes with the question, isn't the Museum of Modern Art racist? It's a punch in the face to the very people who might be the first in line to acquire this work. In the African Library, Yinka Shonabare challenges the Enlightenment notion, notion of African being a place without history, without innovation, and he does so head on whilst alluding to those great libraries of Timbuktu, wrapping us in intellectual tradition. And here, in Hassan Musa's Great American Nude, Osama bin Laden reclines coquettishly on an American flag, a flag whose states are made up by Harley Davidson's, his body borrowed from Boucher's painting of King Louis XIV's Louis mistress, Madame Pompadour. It's uncompromising, in its perspective of American foreign policy, and just another reminder of the depth and scope of rage, of the chasm in interpretation of, of, of events, but also a reminder of what it can be like when, as Picasso, you use the iconography of other cultures to serve your own purposes. That was the conceptual deceit shared by Chris Afili in his Madonna. The artist does the absolute unthinkable to another icon that is traditionally cherished in the West. And again, in the very way that African art is so denigrated through, through, through inappropriate contextualization. As Picasso once sexualized, fetishized African art, here Chris Afili turns a Christian symbol of purity into an icon of sleaze. And then there's Elena Tsui. Cloth is so important in Africa. Beyond its obvious utility, 
There's no other material that has such an intimate relationship with West African families. It becomes the enduring material link between people and the most important moments in their ancestors' lives. He, here, Elanetsui, uses cloth as a metaphor for history, reanimating that sense of what, of its importance, but doing so in a sculpture made from bottle tops, reminding us that history is like spirit, that it's something which links us all. For each of these artists, the implicit focus of attention are the legacies of colonialism, how Africans are seen and see themselves. They want to push back, to develop a new kind of narrative, to, like Hogarth, impact you, to touch you, to affect you. And perhaps because these powerful areas of focus, it's an art that is created to move. And it's an art which has done so. This is, in my mind, the art which has captured, at the moment, the, the, the imaginations of so many people who are interested in contemporary practice. Because African art is special. It's not just evidence in the skill of its artists, in its historical span, and in the uniqueness of its cultural heritage. There is something particularly special in the quality of the cultural transmission that occurs through trauma. That acculturated trauma is something that Derek Walcott evoked effectively, effectively in the seer's history. And whilst this is an evocative image, we have to also accept that today these are images that don't just speak to history, they also speak to our time. They speak to a world that continues to wrestle with old inequalities. And they've added a new body of work to a whole history that articulates similar frustrations and hopes. Visit the great global art fairs of Europe or the US and you will see this work magnetically spellbinding as a new generation of African artists reset the global narrative but this time with Africa at its centre, with African classical art finding its rightful place at the heart of curatorial narratives. This at last, is our time. The magnificent centrifugal force of African creative creativity is pulling once dominant cultures into an African orbit. I just want to finish by just recounting something of one of my most memorable recent trips to Africa where I attended a, a TED Global Conference at which there were experts from a variety of critical disciplines, from genetics to engineering. These are people who are pushing the boundaries of human understanding and they were, they were invited to postulate upon the future. And the only thing that the speakers shared beyond their energy and their optimism was that they were African and is that they worked in Africa and that they were leaders in their fields. And I came away inspired and somewhat concerned 
the African continent will increasingly play part of our, part of our thinking. And yet, we choose to teach our children so little about it. And perhaps more tragically, we seem to care so little. It might be that the future of global economics will force us to care more, but I'd argue that it would simply be the right thing to do. We owe it as much to ourselves as to the continent, to learn more, to listen more, to understand more. But I don't think it would require a great leap of the imagination to envisage a time when Africa might be the global intellectual hub. It might drive colonies, economies of, it, of its allies and neighbours. It might catalyse the cultural and intellectual development of many more. Its intellectuals accepted as global thought leaders, its business community directing the world economy. And after all, that's far from being a dream. That is a description of a corroborable African past. Thank you very much. Thank you for a really fascinating, incredibly stimulating uh, lecture that I'm sure introduced a lot of people to things they've never seen before. And <clears throat> indeed, the questions um, certainly suggest that. And I hope you're happy to answer a few. Um, the first question is, do you have any specific information about the location of the plantation where the Asante drum was found? Do we know exactly where it was found or anything about it? I don't know the exact, I don't know the exact plantation that it was found. I apologise. No, don't apologise. But here is a much more tricky question for you around the Asante drum, and that is, it, that is and several people want to know this, should it remain in the British Museum? <laughs> <laughs> I think um, these are difficult questions, but... For me, as someone who, of African descent who grew up in, in Britain, that it was the British Museum was the place in which I first came in contact with cultural history from beyond Europe. And it does an incredible job of presenting that. And drums like that particular Asante drum that they are made in Ghana and continue to be. And so um, there is, they aren't scarce in that sense. The, the, the importance of that drum is the story that it has to tell about that particular trade, that particular moment, Britain's involvement about the story of oppression about the resistance. It's that story, which is in part a diaspora story, but it's a story which I think that we all benefit from knowing. And I think many of these pieces, that they have a particular resonance in places like the British Museum that helps them to aid in us creating a greater equity um, in the 21st century as we begin to reconsider um, history and Britain's place within it. Thank you. There's a very specific question here about um, uh, the dates of the two paintings we, you showed from the Congo. That um, is, um, I think that was El um, Kalima 
Um, it was a picture of the, I think it's the two pictures of the uh, those sort of white colonial officers with... Oh, right. That these, are, these are actually, I, th I think they're from the 50s, but they're not particularly, they're not that old. But um, I could find out the exact date. Yeah, that's very helpful. Um, uh, and lastly, what became of the great library of Timbuktu and what is its enduring cultural impact? The library still exists. Um, that... Unfortunately, it's a region of the world which um, has been very unstable in, in recent years, and so a certain amount of the most important work was actually moved from Timbuktu um, recently. But those libraries, they still remain. They are still, um, many of them, in the hands of, 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 of private families, but they... But the resonance, but the importance of them is something which I think is still understood. And in part, one of the reasons why they are, they are targeted is because of a knowledge of the importance, the remaining importance of that history. And I think we have to do whatever we can to support um, uh, scholars and librarians in Mali in protecting those, that, the, those archives. Many of the works have been, many of the pieces have been digitized, but we have to try to support not just the libraries, but also to make sure that they remain there. Thank you very much, and thank you so much for setting off our um, series of lectures on Black History Month so brilliantly. I'm oh, so grateful. Thank, thank you, thank you. Son. Thank you.